Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. A lily pad filled pond, a swirling night sky, a party on a riverboat. Often we think of masterpieces inspired by what's already beautiful. But what about the stuff we often overlook? What about neon signs, storefronts, and baking sheets? When arranged by Nary Ward, these forgettable items turn from trash to timeless works of art. Nary Ward's work, currently on display at the Institute of Contemporary Art in Boston, celebrates and elevates the objects in our everyday lives. Joining us from Argo Studios in New York City, artist Nary Ward. Nary, welcome to Under the Radar. Great to be here, Kelly. Thank you. Oh, I'm so glad to have you. This is the biggest show, the largest survey of your work to date as an artist, and it's very broad. It encompasses so much of your work that you've done in different cities and around the world and, and also in uh, the United States. Let me just read this brief description from the ICA about your work. It says, you derive inspiration from your immediate environment, incorporating found objects. So talk about the found objects piece of this. Why is this so important to what you're trying to say? Yeah, a lot of the ideas are definitely kind of inspired by the chance meeting of these found objects. And I think I'm a natural storyteller. So there are these objects that people somehow take for granted or they don't see them in the same way anymore because maybe they're uh, discarded. And there's something that I wanted to generally want to say when I see something like that. It's sort of a segue for some kind of a conversation, some kind of question. And so that's been an important part of my practice, everyday chance meeting of um, object and ideas. How do you know which found object is perfect for any one piece? Does it come to you at all, all at once? Do you work with one piece for a while and then it finally seems to fit? Or do you try many different pieces before settling on an item? There are two things that happen. There, there are some things that you I see on the street and right away it triggers an idea and a placement. And then there are moments where I just pick up something and I know it's going to talk to me or it's talking to me, but I just have to find the right story to put it in. And I'll have it in my storage. I have a, a huge storage space in my basement of my studio. And so it'll just what I call simmer there, like cooking. <laughs> and and I always jokingly say that I have a lot of crying babies in my basement because when I go down there, I see things that are sort of talking to me, but they're not ready. They're not ready yet. Sometimes I go down and I find something there and I say, oh, that's exactly what I need for what I'm working on upstairs. And I'll, I'll bring it up and and it'll fit. Uh, so it's me get, being ready, me kind of being in that place where sort of uh, no, able to listen to what they're saying. What would be the one thing, I know you have probably many in your basement right now, that's probably the most unusual piece, just <laughs> crying or waiting? <laughs> well, well, you know what I found? <laughs> some strange, I found in a, quite some time now, this has been then, this is the more problematic piece. It's been object. It's been in my basement for about, 10 years. And it's actually these, I don't know if you've been in these hotels where they have like the service 
silver covering. You know, when you mm-hmm. when you order room service, that that little silver plate that you put your finger through and, exactly. and pick up. Mm-hmm. I have about you know a hundred of those. <laughs> okay, and I know <laughs> they're they're waiting for something. This whole idea of service is somewhere in there, and I just have to find the right object to correlate it with. Okay. An idea to coordinate it with. We heard it here first. I'll be looking forward to seeing that <laughs> when it shows up. Well, meanwhile, let's talk about some of the work that's in the show. Homeland Sweet Homeland is one that is just so arresting. There is an eagle in the center of it. It's three-dimensional. It's on this sort of tufted material, barbed wire around it, a stitched Miranda warning. That's, you know, you have the right to be silent, blah, 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 that the police give you right. if you're arrested. Right. There are bullhorns at the bottom where the eagle's feet would be. The piece is framed by feathers. But here's the thing that gets me. There's a lot of cooking spoons, most of which are slotted, huge ones, as if you would use in an industrial kitchen. And I'm dying to ask you, what do the slotted spoons mean? Even the curator could not tell me what that meant. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they, they started out being this notion of like, you know, the silver spoon, this sort of notion of privilege. And I wanted to still transform them even further. And so they kind of, if you really look at them, they, they look like they're so, sort of blue or golden. And that was actually sort of coincidental when I put a, a kind of a flame to them, uh, heated them up. They started turning into this other kind of process. And I, I like that. That's a really good thing for me when I start out with an idea and it doesn't really fit. And then I have to do two or three things or maybe more, to make it do what I needed to do or make it fit into the storyline. But it was really just, just getting back to your question, it was just this, I wanted to incorporate the notion of privilege into this very homespun iteration of the citizens' rights, which is the Miranda rights. But the spoons have slots in them. So are you suggesting to me that privilege is not all it's cracked up to be, even if it's golden? I like to put in something, it always starts out with a particular point of view, whether it's humorous or whether it's uh, very particular to, like, say, in this case, an idea. And then I try to find a way to <laughs> to mess it up or to pull it into another direction. And, you know, I really wanted to say that even, even if you're privileged, there are other kinds of hot points that mm-hmm. you, you end up being engaged in. Oh, very good. So now I know. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, that's the thing, Callie. I I never really want—I'm actually more interested in what other people take from it. I never really want to lay down, like, this is the way to see the work. I'm more interested in putting up sort of a parable or a seductive space— a visual space for the viewer to sort of get engaged on their own terms. I know that all artists say that. I want to know what you think. I want, <laughs> but sometimes we're standing looking at the piece, going, "I get everything else. I get the bullhorns. I get the feathers. I get the eagle. I get the tufted. I, but cooking spoons right, with slots. Right. He's going to have to tell me. <laughs> so now I know. <laughs> so uh, I first encountered your work at SCAD, the Savannah School of Art and Design, two years ago. I walked mm. into that gallery and was greeted by the large foam balls that look like giant snowmen. You called this piece Mango Tourist. And I'm curious to know, where did that inspiration come from? Well, Mango Tourists were, it was part of a body of work I did in North Adams at Mass Mocha, Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art. And Mass Mocha actually was a former site of Sprague Electronics, which is um, a kind of analog electronic manufacturing. Basically, the entire plant was Sprague. And so when I went in, 
to do my project, the curator was generous enough to say, hey, you know, we have all this stuff. If you want to take any of it, go ahead and take it. And they had actually had all the electronic parts still a good amount, you know, thousands of elements still there, which are the capacitors and conductors. And I was like, okay, yeah, I want to use those. They look like these amazing jewel, bejeweled space elements. And so I said, I don't know what I'm going to do with those, but I, I want to work with those. And the whole idea started to become about this notion of power and mm. impotence. And so the, the mango tourists were kind of a, a reference, it's a sort of a snowman form made out of foam, inundated with the Sprague electronics elements, the uh, capacitors and resistors, and they were all geared towards this frenzied space. I wanted to create, if you look at that piece, it's absolutely about movement and uh, it's kind of frantic visual energy. And so I really wanted it to insinuate this notion of power and, and uh, those electronic pieces also accenting it were to do that. But the idea is that this power was in some ways also about impotence because they had all this movement, but they couldn't move, mm. right? Because they're just they're stationary. They had no legs and they had no arms. And I wanted to correlate that to the idea of a tourist industry because I, I in that, that body of work, I was trying to make a correlation between mass mocha this Massachusetts town that was in at the time and maybe still a little bit depressed, but the arts were being brought in to rejuvenate it. And I was making a connection to Jamaica, where tourism is basically the main industry. And so this idea of an outside entity, an outside kind of energy being brought in to kind of create activity, create movement, create progress, were really what the mango tourists were trying to allude to. We should tell people that you're originally from Jamaica. That's where that little lilt in your voice comes from. <laughs> I'm playing down my patois. But <laughs> right I can still hear it. <laughs> um, so here's a question. If you enter, and when you enter, I'm hoping everybody will go to the ICA, and as I did when I was at in Savannah in the gallery, the projects are huge. When I say large scale, they are large scale. And I'm wondering, what is it about the size and the largeness of the pieces? Because you... You have very few kind of smallish, and even then they're pretty big right. pieces. So what, is, well, what does that do for you? That's a good question, you know, because my strategy from early on was always, if I'm going to use these things that are in disuse and not taken seriously, <laughs> discarded, I want to make sure that they become special. And, and the way I do that is either transforming them through some kind of physical interaction with the surface and, and another material, or to make them create the space for the viewer to occupy, to sort of engulf the viewer. So they become like these kind of architectural elements. So that was always a thing to kind of scale them up if they're considered in significance to make them more significant by scaling them up. And that's why, in fact, a lot of the work, they're large scale, but they're also very modular. Yeah. They're also things mm. that same things repeated over and over. And it's the same, maybe the same disused object that's been kind of multiplied. So it was always about relating to the body and scaling up so that the body had to really engage uh, there was no ignoring the thing because it was so epic in terms of your sight line. Oh, absolutely. Well, it's very effective that way. I was just curious because everything is pretty big. Uh, right. If you're just joining us, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and my guest is Nary Ward, and we're discussing Sunsplashed, his exhibit on display at the Institute of Contemporary Art here in Boston. 
You use a lot of different formats, sculpture, collage, photography, video. Um, we've talked about the large installation performance sometimes. How do you know, I mean, I know that's part of being the artist, but there are pieces, sometimes it's just one thing, and sometimes it's two or three formats working together. How do you see it? Do you just walk in a room as an interior designer would and say, oh, okay, this makes sense. This time I'm... No, no. <laughs> you know. <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good one. No, you know, it's kind of... Uh, there's a lot of different answers to that question, but I'll give you two quick ones. One is that, you know, I always thought, maybe this is something... I always thought that this notion of being specialized is a kind of so-called first world phenomenon, this thing that you just kind of do one thing and you become, you're a painter and that's all you do. And, you know, when you're coming from a kind of third world mindset, you do as many things as you can because the opportunity might not be there for you to get the job. So, you know, I, that's one quote, that's one answer. And the other answer is the ideas kind of tell me. The ideas drive, drive the directive of what the medium is going to be. So that particular idea would translate into an object or it might translate into a performance. And that performance then might translate into a video and, and some kind of photo documentation. Hmm. So those are the two things. I, I always feel like as artists, we sort of turn into a normal default. It's just like claim a medium. And, and I think it's probably healthier. Maybe a lot of artists don't do this to think, let the ideas drive the choice of material. Well, you used interesting material for a piece that has certainly gotten a lot of attention called Naturalization Drawing Table. Now, we right. mentioned that you're originally from Jamaica, but you became a U.S. citizen in 2011. And this table is meant to bring to mind what one would go through if you have to go through the process to become a citizen, the paperwork, the bureaucracy, the laborious process, all of that. I went through the whole thing, and it was very interesting. And at the end, you know, you, your picture that you have to take, which you make us do as part of the art, it becomes a part of this binder, which then becomes a part of the exhibit. I was really fascinated by this on so many levels. Do you see yourself as kind of an artistic spokesperson for immigration? You're trying to say a lot with this piece, and I think yeah, much of it comes through. Yeah. There's a lot, there is a lot. There's a lot of layers to this piece. And that's kind of what, what I'm always hoping for. When I start out with an idea, it's like, okay, now how can I create different moments or pockets of ideas within that bigger idea? So that's, it becomes a kind of doorway for somebody to engage uh, on some other personal level. But the naturalization table is actually coming from me engaging my ideas about my own, like you mentioned, applying for citizenship. And the naturalization forms are what I've kind of rendered these drawings that you mentioned that become a kind of trade for the viewer to engage in the sort of participatory piece. What they do is they'll come and they'll get you know, naturalized through, they'll fill out a form and they have to show the proper ID and then get a, an image taken of themselves right in front of the, right there, in front of witnesses. And they'll have a notary uh, on hand that makes sure that everything is legal. And then they get the suite of drawings, uh, the trade. And then, like you said, the work, the images and the form stays with the piece and they become part of this kind of community of owners. So the, the idea was for me to take on the bureaucratic process of applying for naturalization and then having it uh, sort of set to another kind of expectation, which is the trade, the trade of your image, your form that uh, you fill out for the artwork. In that trajectory, in, in, the, in the process, there is this anxiety of going through what one would normally go through in any kind of maybe legal or bureaucratic system, you know, outside of that project. 
And then they end up, in my piece, the conclusion is that they're, um, they're rewarded with this trade. So it's trying to compress a little bit of anxiety with a little bit of, maybe reward is too strong a word, but a kind of conclusion of results that normally happens, supposed to happen in a bureaucratic process. But the anxiety is what I notice that people really go through. It brings up a lot of, for a lot of folks who have gone through, you know, any uh, interfacing with any kind of bureaucratic system, where you become anonymous, where you become, in some ways, you're vulnerable, more vulnerable to being that number. I think that's what it comes through in the process of uh, engaging with peace. And in doing so, you, you realize you could be thrown out at any point for not having this or that proper identification, you know, didn't right. fill out the form right, all of that. And, and I would use the word reward because if you go through this process, then the reward, of course, is that you get the special gift of being an American citizen. But for us, those of us who went through the process so that we could just feel it and to be a part of your artistic uh, vision, we get a gift of drawings from you at the end of the process. And frankly, I'm greedy and I wanted them. So I was willing to <laughs> suffer through, <laughs> oh, great. through the bureaucracy so I could get the drawings at the end. And, so. and you become part of a community. <laughs> That's you right. know, it's, it's uh, that idea that now you're part of this work as well. So it was great. My favorite piece, and I loved it uh, when I saw it in Savannah years ago, I still love it, is We the People. It's just a wonderful piece. It's huge, of course. It looks like classic script, like almost handwriting on the wall, as if you'd taken a million different colored gels and wrote We the People hugely in this sort of formal script. And when you get mm. closer, you realize it's made of hundreds of shoelaces. And it makes such a powerful patriotic statement about being different but one, about, you know, who are we to be We the People, all of that, and just those three words, and also in the way that you fashioned it. And I just love it, love it, love it. I imagine Thanks. you yeah. get a lot of response from it, to it, rather. Yeah, you know, in that piece is probably early work as well. It was made, I think, maybe maybe at the same time, maybe 2011 as well. It was a, it was a collaboration with the Fabric Workshop in Philadelphia. And that's why I actually chose that preamble to the Constitution, um, We the People, because I was in Philadelphia, and I thought, you know, I want to do something at that time that the idea was really just to do this kind of sleepy text that we kind of take for granted and then try to have our bodies relate to it. And the bodies relate to it. My strategy was to scale it up, make it large, like you mentioned, and also use the shoelaces to articulate it. And the shoelaces being a kind of anonymous presence of the body. And so um, that piece has really changed in the context of our recent presidential cycle. And I think people are seeing it in an entirely different way. Like you said, it becomes about this idea of participation, becomes the idea of who is the we, and the question of our relationship to government or governance. And so I think it's, it's interesting for me how that work has evolved as the time has changed. And I should mention to people that these little holes are in the wall and you push the shoelace through and that's what you know, makes forms the letters, but it's, I can only imagine how long it takes to install that piece because it's huge and there are a lot of shoelaces, yeah, but, there, but it's there very are a few effective. thousand holes. Yeah, it's very <laughs> yeah. effective. I love it. It was really important for me uh, that it wasn't just panels, you know, that it was really in the structure of the building. And so that commitment to 
the architecture of the space. Well, that's what makes it, I think, that's what makes it so fantastic because you, you can get a different response far away and then close up and then from the mm. side and then you're like, oh my God, it's really, I love it. Thank now, you. the name of the exhibit is called Sunsplash, which is actually refers to a series of photographs of yourself, you say, playing the quote-unquote happy Jamaican. This <laughs> seems especially pointed, so do people get what you're trying to say with these photographs and... Um, well, you know, it, it was a, it was a project that I did a series of photographs, performance slash photographs, that I did while I was in a Rome Prize recipient. I was in Rome, and I wanted to do this project because it was a space where a lot of when I was being introduced in social events, they would say, you know, this is a Jamaican artist, and I've been living in you know New York now for you know maybe twenty some years, so I was it was really strange for me to think about, and I, and I yeah I guess I said yeah I guess I am a Jamaican artist in their eyes, but this how you know people claim labels or are given labels and what that means. So I was really trying to question the idea of being Jamaican or what that meant in, t- in certain eyes. And I remember specifically one event I was at, social event, and my gallerist introduced me and as a Jamaican artist and the collector, not meaning to be rude, older woman said, you know, oh, you're Jamaican. You don't seem very happy, <laughs> you know, and I thought that was very strange because her limited experience with Jamaicans through tourism, I'm sure, was that they were happy people, you know, because, of course, they're trying to appease the tourists. So I think I, I said, I got to do something. This is so strange. And this is what, instead of getting mad, it would be an outrage. I said, this is an interesting idea here. There's something here. And so that's kind of how my brain works. I said, okay, I got to do something with this. And in fact, in Sunsplash, in that series of photographs where I wanted to be watered, holding house plants in different households in in Italy, being watered with the plants. I actually wanted to be smiling. I really wanted to be happy and and have the water sort of become a a kind of metaphor for sweat or for a kind of absurd moment. But in the end, it just didn't work. I just had to look serious. And that's where you got Sunsplash becomes this strange image. So last question. A lot of artists say, my work speaks for me. That's it. I don't feel the need to say anymore. Where are you, given particularly this current political time and the fact that your work speaks to a lot of issues around power and class and many of... I think, you know, mm, I, that's a great question. Yeah, I kind of feel like, you know, I, I am um, an educator. I, I work in the university, Hunter College in New York City. So I do feel like there is a part of me that wants to teach people how to look at the work. And so I'm torn all the time because I, there's that part, and I'm like, yeah, but look at that and think about this. And and there's other another side of me who, who really wants the work as an object to just live on its own and really affect people and it's uh, on their own terms. So I'm always torn by that. And I, and I feel like I take on opportunities where I can do both. There are moments where I can just you know, show the work in a museum or gallery setting and leave and not make sure I'm not around. And then moments like this where I get a chance to, to give a little bit of insight into what the ideas, or at least what my thinking process is for the work. Well, I re- very much appreciate your taking the time to do so with me, and I thank you so much for joining me. Oh, my pleasure, Kelly. Thank you. Nary Ward is an artist living in New York City. His exhibit, Sunsplashed, is currently on display at the Institute of Contemporary Art in Boston. The exhibit runs through September 4th. Details at icaboston.org. And check out a narrated slideshow of our tour of Nary's work at the ICA on our website, news.wgbh.org utr. 
That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus material on the web at news.wgbh.org slash UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Please write to us at undertheradar at wgbh.org. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Andrea Aswai is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.